0: Hi, this is Theology on Tape, portable Catholic theology for catechists or Catholics who want to dig deeper.
1: Hi, Theology on Tape.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm Elizabeth.
1: (laughs) My name's Shane.
0: This episode is about the theological virtues.
1: The theological virtues are?
0: Faith, hope, and charity.
1: Yes, exactly. Yeah. Do you have a prayer for us that's on this topic?
0: Yeah, I thought it'd be good to begin with an act of charity. Of the three corresponding prayers, an act of faith, an act of hope, an act of charity. So ready to pray? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Mm -hmm. Oh my God, I love thee above all things, with my whole heart and soul, because thou art all good and worthy of all love. I love my neighbor as myself for the love of thee. I forgive all who have injured me and ask pardon of all whom I have injured. Amen. All right, how do we distinguish between the cardinal virtues and the theological virtues?
1: So the cardinal virtues, prudence, justice, temperance, fortitude, these are all ordered to, or they correspond to our human nature. So if we ask the question of like, what does it mean to be a good person? Well, we have to know, what is a person? A well, person is body and soul. And so we have in our soul, we have the intellect and the will. In our body, we have appetites and fears. And so to have all of those things properly ordered to be a good person would to be to exercise these habits, these virtues of prudence, justice, temperance, fortitude. That's how we can be happy and good. The theological virtues take us a step beyond that and because there's a happiness that surpasses the natural happiness that we can have through natural virtue so that's where we start talking about supernatural literally that which is beyond nature
0: we're born with all of these though that's the thing right
1: well you're born with the cardinal virtues you're not born with theological virtues okay because the cardinal virtues correspond to your nature. As a human being, you have something approximating all of those virtues innately within you. It's responsible for you to exercise them and therefore to strengthen them, but they are are within your natural capacity to exercise because they're part of your nature. They're built into you. The theological virtues go beyond your nature, supernatural. So in that sense you are not born with them. You don't have them innately. Faith, hope and charity. By the way, I use the term charity rather than love. They technically it means love. It's we're using the Latin caritas which means love. But I like to use the word charity because it distinguishes it from love that we use in an ordinary sense. So I don't mean if I just say love we're talking about love 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 People have all, the word love has too many connotations already. So I want to use a word that's a little more foreign. We don't use as often charity to distinguish something more specific. But with all of them, faith, hope, and charity, we should be clear that these are, and this is why we call them theological virtues, is that these are virtues that are oriented towards God. So you can have faith in a lot of different things. You can have hope in a lot of different things and you can love a lot of different things. Those are not what we mean by the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love. By these theological virtues, we mean faith in God, hope in God, and love for God. So that a mother loves her child, that's not supernatural. That is innate. It is intrinsic. We are born with that capacity to love. that's, again, that's why you like to use the word charity because we're talking about a supernatural love for God that we are not born with that capacity.
0: If we're saying that charity is love, can you help me define faith, hope, and love in the supernatural sense, I guess?
1: Yeah, I think the helpful way to understand how they work is realizing that even though they take us beyond our nature, they are supernatural. I'll probably keep saying that. They are still built on our nature. This is an important, by the way, this is an important Catholic theological concept, which is that grace builds on nature. Grace doesn't destroy nature. Now that might sound kind of strange to why would it, why would anyone think that grace destroys nature? But actually, this is a major point of disagreement between Catholic theologians and most Protestant theologians. That's why Catholics have to insist grace builds on nature. Catholics, I mean, sorry, Protestants, especially following like John Calvin, John Calvin taught the idea of total depravity, meaning there is nothing good in you. You are intrinsically disgusting and worthless, and there is nothing good in you whatsoever. The Catholic theology is a little more positive and says that, <laughs> no, in fact, even even a sinful human being has a nature that has been created by God and that is ordered towards goodness. Now, of course, we recognize, and I even mentioned this earlier in a previous episode, that for Augustine, for instance, of course, we have no goodness apart from God. That's true, because God is goodness itself. So, of course, we, we're not good without God. But God has created us and made us to be good. So we have an intrinsic and innate goodness that's there. Now, sin corrupts it and sin turns us away and gives us a proclivity to evil. Yes, all of that is true. But our nature as such is still ordered to the good. The problem is that our nature needs to be perfected, not destroyed and rebuilt. And that's the difference between what we might say the Catholic view. Grace perfects nature grace builds upon nature, it restores it and uplifts it rather than a maybe a more protestant view which would dis, which would say we need to get rid of everything about you and god's going to start fresh. So for instance, for Protestants, you do not cooperate. You don't even really cooperate in your salvation. You contribute nothing to it. Whereas the Catholic would say, well of course we we have nothing to give that god himself didn't give us. That's true. But God does give us the the grace, and He gives us uh, a certain power of will and nature such that we can cooperate. Of course, without God, it always goes without saying. Without God, we couldn't do any of this. Mm-hmm. Right? Without God, we wouldn't exist. So that goes without saying. But God does create us in such a way that we really do cooperate with what God is doing. We are really involved.
0: I don't want to get the, get into a argument against. Yeah, no, go um, ahead. Any christian faith but it does seem like it's like as catholics we we are more proactive if 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 we keep this in mind yeah. that it's it's on
1: us well you can see why it would be a fine balance though right because on the one hand you don't want to fall into the trap of saying that we're good and our goodness uh, contributes to god in such a way that that we we are somehow independent of God. That would obviously be too far. And the Catholic Church has definitely rejected that idea. We don't have any goodness apart from God. So the Protestants really want to emphasize that part of it. But I think in maybe overemphasizing that, they lack or or sometimes gloss over the fact that, no, something really is expected of you. Of course, it's God working in you, but it's still your responsibility. It's not just... You do nothing. You work, but you work because God is working within you. The The analogy that Martin Luther used for justification, for instance, was a, a snow-covered dung heap, right? So, like, what you are really is dung, mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, you are covered by the righteousness of Christ, which is this blanket of snow. A Catholic version of justification says that no, God doesn't just want to cover you in a blanket of snow. God wants to actually transform you in such a way that now you are who God wants you to be. And that is exactly what these virtues are about, especially the theological virtues. They are there, God gives them to us to perfect our nature, to exalt our nature, and to conform us to his image.
0: And using the white snow example it seems purify
1: yes but again he purifies not just like aesthetically Mm -hmm. but really really deep down in who we are our souls he fixes them and he does it with a kind of well aquinas uses the word infusion these theological virtues are infused meaning we don't have them naturally we're not born with them but god sort of puts them inside of us And where do you suppose that happens
0: mass (laughs) yes that's that's... the answer to all these right (laughs) yes yeah
1: the answer is always the mass uh the sacraments yes the sacraments chiefly baptism so baptism is where we first receive the gift of the holy spirit and therefore with the holy spirit we receive these theological virtues that they conform us to God's nature. And this is the word nature is a really technical term, and so I want us to catch the importance of that. Our human nature, our intellect and our will, our appetites and fears, those things that are natural to us, we have the cardinal virtues that help us moderate and control those things. But that's just our human nature. The Bible lays out a really interesting promise for us that we become partakers, St. Peter says, we become partakers in the divine nature. That's remarkable because a nature is what something is. Like I, my nature is to be a human being. The nature of that is a chair. That's its nature. A chair has the nature of a chair. A human being has the nature of a human being. So if we partake in the divine nature, what does that make us? God, 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 right? So this is the the miracle, the wonder of redemption that we become partakers in the divine nature that we do not adequately appreciate how remarkable that is. The way the church fathers put it, God became man so that man might become God. And it sounds very heretical. I get it. And we of course don't become God by nature, right? Like we we, would, we were nev- we will never be equal to God. Because we're never actually God. But who God is and what God is, he shares that with us so that we become like God, we, be, we are made into the image of God. And the theological virtues are what get us there. So let's talk about them specifically. Because we began by saying that these build on our nature. They specifically, the theological virtues specifically exalt our soul, right? as opposed to just our body. Because our bodies will never be the way in which we image God. The soul is more like God. So God takes the soul and that's what he's working with to conform it to his image. So the soul has two basic operations. Do you remember what those are? Hmm, The will. That's one.
0: And something else.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So the intellect and the will. Okay. So the intellect is how we understand things. The will is how we choose things. If God is going to take our soul and take those operations and uplift them and perfect them, the perfection of the, of the intellect is to orient it towards knowing and understanding something that it's beyond its natural capacity to know and understand. Which is to say, we do not have the natural capacity to know or to understand God. But God wants to give us that ability. And so he gives us the virtue of faith. Faith, is not knowledge of God, but it orients our intellect towards God such that we begin to have a knowledge of God. We are oriented towards a knowledge of God. And through practicing the virtue of faith, our intellect begins that process of preparation by which we someday will be ready to see, to know, to understand God. So does that make sense, that relationship between faith and the intellect? Because it's a a faith, I don't know. Does it make sense to you to say that faith is a kind of operation of the understanding or it has something to do with knowledge? It's somehow related to that, right?
0: Yeah, and even you can say like there's a knowing, that's Mm -hmm. sort of a faith, but you don't actually know, but you have a a sense.
1: Yeah. How does the Bible put it in, in Hebrews chapter 11? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So we don't see it. We don't have direct knowledge of it, but we have faith. Faith is a kind of anticipatory knowledge. So we don't know it the way we know other things, but we know it in a trusting sort of way.
0: Does an agnostic have faith?
1: The agnostic might have faith. It's possible in these ways to to have faith. But what we have to remember about these theological virtues is is that it's not just a matter of having them or not having them, but how you use them. So, someone who identifies as an atheist or is an atheist really doesn't believe in God. They might have been given the gift of faith and they might have simply rejected it. Or they might have the gift of faith, in some really um, suppressed way. But they are simply not exercising it. This is what reminds me of the story that Jesus tells, the parable of the talents, where he gives to one servant, the master gives to one servant, one talent. To another, he gives five. To another, he gives ten. This is a parallel of how God treats us with faith. God gives to each person a different amount of faith. And so he doesn't expect the same return. So for someone who maybe people we know, maybe even you yourself are someone who is skeptical. You don't naturally have a lot of faith. And I think we know people on the other end of the spectrum who are, they just, faith just comes so naturally and easy to them. So we all have different amounts of faith, but what's, what matters most is how we will use what we've been given. So someone who is not demonstrating faith might have faith in some way, but they're simply choosing not to exercise it, in which case it will deteriorate and it can be lost.
0: I'm thinking of... Um like Mother Teresa, like she was in that, I guess like she was in a huge, um, she had a huge span of desolation. Yeah. So I would guess that she was given a large, a large quantity of faith, like bestowed like a lot of faith, but then in her struggle feeling apart from God yeah. because she used, she strengthened her faith so much that she was able to survive that period.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you used that example because I thought you were maybe going to take it in a different direction. But that's right. Someone who goes through, like Mother Teresa did, long periods of her life without any sense of God's presence. You might say, and this is what I thought, and I'm glad you didn't. But I could see someone hearing that and saying like, oh, well, then she didn't have much of the gift of faith because you might be tricked into thinking that faith is something that accompanies you with a feeling, but it's not, it's it's the work, it's the virtue, it's the habit of remaining oriented towards God, even despite the feelings of God's absence. So having a strong faith does not mean that you will always be keenly aware of God's presence or that you'll feel it in some way. But that you will continue to live and to act with that trust that is oriented towards a knowledge of God, even when you don't have the feeling for it. So, yeah, that's a that's a great example.
0: And it's just another way of thinking that it affects people across no matter what your religious, um, like if you're in religious life or if you are a lay person, Mm -hmm. that it affects a saint now, actually. That it affected A lot of the saints have gone through these periods, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, we should never, and this is, again, an important point, that we should never confuse God with our feeling of God. And we should never, as we're talking about faith, we should never confuse faith with a feeling. Faith is something that you exercise, as you were saying, probably most, especially in moments where you don't have good feelings. When you don't feel God's presence is when you need faith most of all. So, yeah, that's right.
0: How does hope play into that? I guess like maybe in that same period, you or you have that hope that...
1: Yeah, I for a long time, I struggled with distinguishing faith and hope. Because they seem, in some ways that we use them, they might almost be synonyms. Faith and hope. They're, they're definitely similar. There's no question about that. But I think what helps us really distinguish between faith and hope is to realize that they are that they are virtues that are related to two two different parts of the human nature. So whereas faith is the uplifting of the human intellect to know something beyond what it naturally has the ability to know. Hope does the same thing with the human will. So that our choices and what we desire, what we aim for in life, that is what is being raised. So to say that we have hope is to say that we desire things that are greater and we we make a choice for things that are greater than we would have the natural capacity to choose or to desire. I think hope has a very natural or a kind of obvious um, implication in terms of how we live our lives because we live our lives with hope when we don't put all of our stock in the things of this world. Anyone who lives their life in the light of the world to come is living with hope. Like if I'm willing to give up something in my life and make a real sacrifice for the kingdom of God, that's hope. That's hope because if I didn't really really believe in God if I didn't really hope in what God was going to do for me in the life to come why would I make that sacrifice why would I do that I think the best example of this the most beautiful thing is especially women religious who live in cloister and they dedicate their lives to prayer entirely we all maybe know people who are religious um, priests or sisters, things like that. And it's beautiful. It's a beautiful ministry to dedicate your life to contemplation. But most of the people that we know who are dedicated to a life of contemplation, they still are out there in active ministry. They're still out in the world in some way. But people who leave the world behind entirely to go into a cloister And to say, I'm going to pray every day, all day. That's my vocation. That's my calling in life is to pray. If you didn't believe in the power of prayer, how could you ever do that? So it's a beautiful testimony to, I think this virtue of hope because their life is radically reoriented in a way that if God didn't exist, what they're doing would make no sense.
0: Uh, Faith and hope. I see them just... I guess we'll see with charity, but it seems like you can't have one without the other two.
1: Yeah, you can't hope for something that you don't believe in. So faith is a kind of antecedent. In the same way, I guess that the the will proceeds from the intellect, meaning it's a fancy way of saying you choose things based on your understanding. Mm -hmm. Your will is a product of your intellect. If you didn't have an intellect, you wouldn't have a will. So it would be the same with hope and faith. If you don't have faith, you couldn't have hope.
0: Does charity go back to the soul? Or is that?
1: So charity, I've had a a harder time kind of locating it in terms of how we might say how it relates to the soul. Because Aquinas will say that charity is the queen of all virtues. Really? Yeah. You like that? Yeah, I like it. (laughs) Charity is the queen of all virtues, meaning that it is... Well, let's, okay, let's put it this way. Faith and hope are temporary. Mm -hmm. In heaven, we won't have faith and hope.
0: Oh. Right? Yeah.
1: Because in heaven, we don't need faith to point us towards knowledge of God because we will have knowledge of God. We will have faith realized. Similarly, we won't have hope because hope points us towards something that in the future and in heaven, we possess it. So faith and hope pass away, but charity doesn't. I think that charity is grounded in some way in faith and hope. As we would say, you can't love someone that you don't know. Charity emerges out of faith and hope in some sense, you might say, or at least it's predicated on them. But what Aquinas means when he says that charity is the queen of all virtues is that charity flows down into all of the other virtues and perfects them and raises them up to something that would be even greater. So how can we get at what charity means? And again, this is why I use the word charity and not love, because yes, it is love for God. And it's very important to that at least we get that part clear, that by this theological virtue, we don't just mean like, like I said before, the the love of a mother for her child. By love for God is this higher supernatural thing something that doesn't come naturally to us something that we're not born with it's a love for god that god himself gives us and so the way i think we can describe it is charity is like this supernatural link it's this it's it's the bond that we have with god it's what literally unites us to god so we were talking before about uh being partakers of the divine nature and being made like God, even as the church fathers would say, man was made God that God or God became man that man might become God. We become united with God. We literally share in his nature by charity.
0: In the present tense. Yes. Not just the future tense. Not just the future.
1: And that's the remarkable thing is that faith and hope point us towards the future. Charity is something that we have now and is something that we will always have. So charity right now, and that's why I'm trying to, I'm, you know, I'm falling short in words to describe what it means for charity to unite us with God, because charity is what we will possess for all of eternity. Charity is heaven. Really, it's charity is already heaven. So Charity is eternal life. I mean, we could phrase it however you want to. But what we will experience for eternity, we begin to experience now. And that is charity. And that's why you see the word love just doesn't do it adequate. Because we love, I mean, my goodness, I love football. That has nothing to do with what we're talking about. (laughs) Charity is this conforming of our nature to God's nature. It unites us to God. It's, It's... it's the most remarkable thing in the universe. Uh, and it transforms everything else that we do. That's why it's the queen of all the virtues.
0: Are there... Um, so with the cardinal virtues, there are the vices, the opposing vices.
1: Ah, yes. So...
0: With with faith, hope, and charity, are there opposing
1: y- vices? Yes and no. Okay. So vices, I'm glad you brought this up because I don't think we talked about this explicitly before. But this Aquinas gets from Aristotle that virtue always resides in the golden mean, the middle point between two extremes. So, for instance, let's say with the virtue of fortitude or courage, there's a vice on either side. You can have not enough courage, which is to be cowardly. You can also have an excess, which would be to be foolhardy. Mm -hmm. Right? Okay, so all the virtues are like that. There's an excess on both sides. Even with faith and hope. With faith, you can have a lack of faith. That seems obvious. But Aquinas will also say you can have uh, an excess which would be something like presumption. Or he might use that term with hope. But either way, the, the point is clear. That you can let's go with hope for instance it's a clear example the the sin of presumption a kind of excess of hope is to say oh god's going to reward me for sure i have such confidence in the reward that god has for me that i've now become blind to my own sins and so you are taking advantage of what god has held out for you and you've fallen into an excess so you can have a deficiency of hope which would be despair you can have an excess which would be presumption. The virtues are always in the middle of two vices, except for charity. And this is where Aquinas is getting at this idea of, because charity is literally the indwelling of God's presence, we always, always, always are growing in charity. There's no such thing as an excess of charity, because charity is what is expanding our hearts and giving us that capacity for God. And so we want as much charity as we can get. There's no upper limit.
0: But there's an um, absolute zero. Yeah, sure. yeah, right. Sure. Exactly.
1: Exactly. There's one other thing that I'd like to say about charity. And this will lead us into future conversations. Because I want to have a whole topic where that we dedicate to heaven um, and hell too, I guess. But because charity is this union with God, this connection that we have with God... As the Bible says, God is love, right? So when we have charity in our hearts, it's literally the indwelling of God's presence. So I think that's an important thing to to be aware of, that God is really with us and in us as charity. But here's the important thing, is that our experience of heaven will be proportional, this is what Aquinas says, our experience of heaven and our joy in heaven will be proportional to the charity that we have in this life and this comes as news i think to most people who assume that heaven is a kind of thing like either you get in or you don't Mm -hmm. you're in or you're out it's a club yeah but that there's no sense of degrees within heaven i think people think of the experience of heaven as just uniform we're all, heaven's the same for everybody. It's not what the church teaches actually. That some in heaven are closer to God. And therefore they have a greater joy, a greater happiness in heaven. Why? Because they had a greater charity in life. Their hearts are more fully opened to God. So think of charity as in your heart, in your soul, you have a capacity for God. And in this life, the more you follow God's will, the more you exercise faith and hope and love and the other virtues, the more you fulfill God's calling for your life. Your capacity for God within your heart and soul expands so that you have more space for god within yourself now how does that relate to heaven but that in heaven we all experience fullness so let there be no mistake about that i'm not saying that there is any degree of sadness in heaven but someone could have a very tiny capacity for god and someone could have a massive capacity for god in their soul they will both experience fullness so there's nothing lacking. Remember, to be to have something lacking would be an evil. Mm-hmm. So there's nothing lacking. But still, the great saints, and of course, greatest of all, the mother of God, has the highest capacity for God's presence within her soul. She experiences the fullness of God's presence like no one else ever could or will. Now, someone else who, uh, let's say, for instance, saint dismas who's the thief on the cross he makes it into heaven but just by the skin of his teeth Mm -hmm. right so he experiences the fullness of love in heaven but his capacity for fullness is greatly diminished and i think this is partially motivation for us to say like well i'm not going to hell so you know what what what's there to do just don't go to hell I mean, not going to hell. That's just step one. Now we want to grow in holiness. We want to grow in love for God. And there's, there's an infinite path ahead of us to continue down that path.
0: And having that openness to God, I mean, we were meant to do good. We were meant to be love. Yeah. Um, so just naturally will make us happier.
1: That's, that's it. That's it with all of this is that we will be happier. Not only in the life to come, but in this life. We will be happier. Not to say that we won't experience suffering, but we will endure that suffering with great happiness if we are able to have this um, presence of God in our hearts.
0: Next up, we have an episode on heaven and hell. So please subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or Spotify for updates. And if you have questions about something we've covered or something you'd like us to discuss, uh, you can email us at theologyontape at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.
1: Do you know uh, old people Facebook?
0: I thought that was just
1: Facebook. Oh, it's a subreddit. A lot of it is like people posting on like random photos. Somebody will comment and be like, oh, so-and-so died today. (laughs) Just like a random status update, somebody will comment
0: like... This photo of you like in front of the Eiffel Tower Mm -hmm. is always going to have like a death notice on it.